Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medical legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is You Got a Nerve Part 2, where we'll discuss post-delivery nerve injury in obstetric patients. In this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Okay, so we promised you a discussion about intrinsic obstetric palsies and we're not going to disappoint. So hang on to your hats because this is going to be worthwhile, Mm. hopefully. Mm. Okay, so in obstetrics, postpartum sensory or motor dysfunction has an incidence of approximately 1%. The etiology of the nerve injury can be compressive, which is an incidence of about 1 in 100 deliveries, or ischemia, which occurs in about 1 in 500,000 deliveries. The causes of compressive nerve injuries include, firstly, compression of the lumbosacral trunk by the fetal head, secondly, patient positioning, for example, lithotomy or legs in stirrups, and lastly, by instrumental delivery. Ischemic neuropathies result either from prolonged hypotension or from direct pressure from the fetal head on the internal iliac arteries during a prolonged labour. Now, I'm sure you can probably guess the risk factors for intrinsic obstetric nerve injury after listening to us talk about the mechanism of injury, but we'll cover them regardless. Patients at increased risk of intrinsic injury include primaparous patients, patient positioning, large fetal head, prolonged second stage of labour, and an instrumental delivery. Neuraxial anaesthesia can theoretically contribute indirectly to intrinsic obstetric nerve injury, and this may be due to a prolonged second stage of labour. The presence of a sensory block leading to poor awareness of discomfort associated with impending nerve damage, the mother pushing for a prolonged period of time in one position, and there being a limited choice of positioning for the patient due to motor weakness. Some studies have shown no increase in the relative risk to patients with neuraxial analgesia in labour. Intrinsic obstetric palsies can result from nerve injury at any number of different locations, including the spinal cord, the lumbosacral roots, the lumbosacral trunk, or peripheral nerves. The vast majority of these injuries produce a unilateral sensory or motor deficit related to the damaged nerve, but in some instances you can have bilateral symptoms. These lesions often present with either motor and or sensory disturbance in the absence of pain. Injury to the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve and the femoral nerve appear to be the most common postpartum neuropathies. Okay, so we're going to walk through the clinical syndromes that arise from injury to specific nerves, starting with the most common, injury to the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. This nerve is a sensory nerve that arises from the dorsal divisions of the L2 and L3 nerves. Peripartum injury to this nerve occurs via compression at the location where it passes underneath the inguinal ligament, particularly with prolonged hip flexion. Injury can also occur in obesity as a result of increased pressure on the inguinal ligament itself. 
This injury is often called neuralgia parasthetica and presents as decreased sensation over the anterolateral aspect of the thigh. There is no motor component to this injury. The femoral nerve arises from the dorsal divisions of the ventral rami of L2, L3 and L4 nerve roots. Femoral nerve injury during delivery can occur through several different mechanisms. Similar to the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve, the femoral nerve can also be compressed as it passes beneath the inguinal ligament, specifically during prolonged hip flexion, abduction and external rotation. As well as this, the femoral nerve is at risk of retraction during caesarean delivery or of compression during a forceps delivery. Femoral neuropathy is bilateral in about 25% of cases and in this instance is often mistaken for an intraspinal lesion. Patients with postpartum femoral nerve injury often present with difficulty climbing stairs. On closer clinical examination, the following can be found. Decreased sensation on the anterior thigh and medial calf, weak knee extension, a reduced or absent patella reflex, also called the knee jerk reflex, which is interesting, the most reliable objective sign of a femoral neuropathy. And you can also see weak hip flexion in patients if the nerve injury also involves the iliacus nerve, where injury is postulated as resulting from decreased perineural flow. Injury to the lumbosacral plexus, L4 to S5, and the sciatic nerve, L4 to S3, occurs due to compression against the posterior pelvic brim down to the sacral ala, and this usually arises from the fetal head during labour's second stage. The nerve injury arises on the opposite side to the position of the fetal occiput. Injury to the lumbosacral plexus results in disrupted sensation over the lower leg and dorsum of the foot. Motor compromise manifests as quadriceps weakness and reduced power with hip adduction if higher lumbar roots are also affected. This nerve injury also results in foot drop, which is typically accompanied by weak ankle dorsiflexion and eversion. In the presence of sciatic nerve injury, the ankle jerk reflex is reduced or absent, and both plantar flexion and dorsiflexion are reduced. Don't forget, the sciatic nerve branches into the sural and common perineal nerves. Damage to the obturator nerve, which arises from the L2 to L4 nerve roots during delivery, can arise from direct compression by the fetal head or via compression during a forceps delivery. As with femoral neuropathies, 25% of obturator injuries are bilateral and again are often confused with intraspinal lesions. Obturator nerve injury presents as decreased sensation over the inner thigh and weakness of hip adduction and rotation. These patients may present with a wide gait. The common perineal nerve arises from L4 to S2 nerve roots and is at risk of direct compression during delivery at the location where it winds around the fibular head. This compression can either result from inappropriate positioning of the patient in stirrups or by hand. Injury to this nerve results in reduced sensation over the lateral lower leg and the dorsum of the foot and toes. Motor distortion sees foot drop, weakness of ankle dorsiflexion and aversion. The ankle reflex remains intact and unaffected. Okay, so we've covered the clinical syndromes arising from both neuraxial anesthesia and intrinsic obstetric palsies. Let's now talk about our approach to assessing postpartum patients with altered neurology in whom a neuraxial block was performed. So first and foremost, any patient that has received neuraxial anesthesia should have timely follow-up from the anaesthetic team or formal acute pain management team. Part of this routine post-assessment visit should include education about symptoms and signs that warrant the patient contacting the hospital or representing for assessment. When a patient is identified as having altered neurology after delivery and in whom neuraxial anesthesia has been provided, prompt assessment is warranted. 
Now, this will come to no surprise to anybody listening, but the first step is a comprehensive history. This can include asking about the symptoms. So when they were noticed, the location of the symptoms, lower leg, upper leg, back or head, whether the symptoms include altered sensation, motor function, altered bowel and bladder habit or pain, and be sure to catalogue these in detail. Infective symptoms like fever and chills. Are the symptoms changing or evolving? Does anything exacerbate the symptoms and how are they affecting the patient's normal function? It's also important to ask about the delivery. So the mode of delivery, whether that be vaginal delivery with or without instrumentation or caesarean section. The duration of the delivery, particularly the duration of the second stage. The position of the fetal head and the patient positioning for delivery and the duration of pushing. So you also need to know about the neuraxial block, the type of block, details of the aseptic technique that was used, any difficulty in insertion, the presence of a bloody tap, the possibility of an inadvertent dural puncture or spinal catheter, pain or paresthesia on insertion, the type, baricity and concentration of the local anaesthetic agent used, as well as additives, sensory or motor block that was slow to resolve and any hypotension. You also need to know about any pre-existing neurology or previous injury. For example, what was the extent of the previous injury and pre-existing alterations in the patient's neurology? How are the current symptoms different to those present prior to delivery? And are there any conditions predisposing the patient to a neuropathy? And that could include things like backache, obesity, disc disease, diabetes, malignancy, coagulopathy, a current infection or any previous trauma. And of course, other medical histories, so things such as coagulopathies or anticoagulant use and administration of other medications like steroids or hypoglycemics. A thorough examination should follow the history. Again, no surprises there. This should include a full lower limb neuro exam, examination of the patient's back and any other affected body parts, for example, the head and a cranial nerve exam as appropriate. The patient's observations and recent blood results should also be checked at this time. I'm sure it goes without saying, but findings from your history and examination should be documented carefully and in detail. Ultimately, the need for further investigation will depend on the clinical picture before you. Deteriorating symptoms or the onset of new symptoms after a symptom-free time period should be treated seriously, as this implies changing pathology, such as increasing compression from an enlarging mass, for example, a hematoma or abscess. It is important to remember that permanent nerve injury occurs between 6 and 12 hours of the onset of symptoms and so rapid assessment is vital. In a review of 647 cases of epidural hematomas and abscesses, it was found that the neurological outcome was favourable in patients treated within the first 12 hours from symptom onset when compared to those with delayed intervention after 12 hours. Interestingly, there was no difference in outcome between patients treated within the first six hours versus those treated within the first seven to 12 hours. Mm, That is surprising, I suppose. Mm. In the event that the patient has sinister symptoms, which include acute onset back pain and radicular leg pain, urinary and anal dysfunction, lower leg numbness and weakness, it is important to organise an immediate MRI to exclude a central lesion. Now, we acknowledge that many red flag symptoms can occur as a result of other postpartum injuries, but nonetheless, as a central lesion can be potentially devastating, its rapid exclusion is still of the utmost importance. For patients in whom a central lesion is found, rapid referral to neurosurgery for definitive management is vital for the reasons we've already discussed. 
For patients in whom nerve injury is suspected in the absence of a central lesion, it is important to have an open and honest discussion with the patient, including advice about when the symptoms are predicted to resolve if appropriate. The case should also be discussed with an obstetric anaesthetic consultant and the pain team to organise and ensure appropriate follow-up, as well as being discussed with a neurologist for further advice. In the instance of a peripheral nerve lesion, if a patient's signs and symptoms don't resolve within a few weeks, it may be appropriate for referral for nerve conduction studies or electromyography to better identify the etiology of the nerve lesion and potentially also the likely prognosis of neural recovery. An obstetric palsy will have nerve conduction changes that occur distally to the site of the anaesthetic intervention. Nerve conduction studies assess the conduction changes in large nerve fibres. These fibres may take as long as three weeks after injury to show changes detected on nerve study. For this reason, early nerve conduction studies may only be of use in patients with pre-existing nerve injury to identify old pathology prior to the evolution of suspected new pathology. In many instances, repeat nerve conduction studies are not recommended as any improvement can be tracked clinically. Lastly, when it comes to patients with suspected nerve injury, adequate follow-up is essential. As well as ensuring appropriate follow-up and regular assessment of the patient, a critical incident report should also be completed, as well as consideration of formal presentation during an anaesthetic morbidity and mortality meeting. It may also be worthwhile contacting your professional indemnity provider early. So in summary, post-obstetric nerve injury is a common occurrence and it's important for the anaesthetist to be aware of both anaesthetic and obstetric causes and to be able to differentiate between these types of injury with thorough clinical assessment. Obstetric causes for injury are much more common than non-obstetric causes, but this should not deter us from rapidly assessing these patients and excluding central lesions. Well, that was a good refresher of a topic where I often find I forget the details if I'm not using it regularly. I agree, but before we say goodbye, Kate, what have you learned in anaesthesia this week? Well, something that I did recently, it's more that I was reteaching myself rather than learning something new, but I actually took the time to go over proper airway assessment and the different tests, their sensitivity and specificity, and how we determine whether someone's going to have a difficult airway or not. And it was just a really timely refresher to remind myself that in isolation, a lot of the sensitivity and specificity of this test is actually very poor. Mm. And that, and looking at the correlations between an increasing number of tests that suggest that you may have airway difficulty and the subsequent outcomes and the number of difficult airways that actually arise in that instance and it was it it just reminded me that well first it actually reminded me of two things the first one is that it's probably a lot more worthwhile of me taking you know patients that have maybe malampati 2 with a short jaw and and you know another sort of mild indicator of difficult airway more seriously Mm. because the correlations are actually fairly decent and the second second thing it reminded me was that I actually realized that I've been grading mandibular protrusion tests incorrectly I've been I've been getting it incorrect so I whenever I saw someone that had really good mandibular protrusion I've been calling it a C not realizing that it's actually an A so (laughs) epic fail on my behalf so I've been grading all of these patients as mandibular protrusion of you know, a C and people going, oh my gosh, mm. and getting stressed unnecessarily. Um, <laughs> the oops. harbinger of doom. Oh my gosh, <laughs> honestly, talk about a doofus moment. But anyway, so that's what I, um, that's what I learned slash reminded myself of this week in mm. anesthesia. Kate, what have you learned this week? Well, I'm still on leave, so oh, I haven't been doing a lot of anesthesia. Luxury. Uh, sort of. When you, <laughs> yeah. 
Well, <laughs> you know what it's like being on parental <laughs> leave. Um, but uh, look, I'll be back soon. But um, just discussing this topic, I mean, it just, you know, reminds you about the wide inter-individual variability with these things because mm. I had a spinal, you know, quite a few months ago now and it lasted a really long time. Yeah. It was about 12 hours in oh. the end until it fully wore off. And I do reflect upon that and I think, oh, gosh, maybe I would have copped an MRI like in my own hospital. Yeah. And probably yeah. not because I knew it was heading. I mean, you know, I had the knowledge to know that things were heading in the right direction. It was just yeah. really slow to regress and wow. I must have a little um, sensitive little nerves or something. <laughs> You're a delicate so, little flower. Clearly. <laughs> as if we didn't know that already. Um, so anyway, it was just an interesting experience really yeah. lying there, you know, about 11 hours afterwards and still feeling tingly yeah. in the legs. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it's interesting though, knowing now, having researched this, knowing what I do now, I suppose you'd kind of think to yourself, well, it's probably more likely to be an obstetric palsy than it is the spinal anesthesia. Like, was it a unilateral or was it a bilateral? No, it's it was just a really slow, it was just a slow block. Yeah, everything was, you know, it was all just retreating as it should. I had a bromage of zero, like I couldn't move my legs leaving recovery. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. <laughs> just, I don't know. I think it just must be me. So, uh, yeah. Oh, good to know it's for the right. future for when you uh, fracture your off in 40 yeah, years time. Exactly. I'll be mm. sure to tell them I wasn't any satisfied. <laughs> And they'll be like, yes, dear. That's sure. it, darling. Just lie down. You'll be fine. Right. And then oh. whispering to themselves, she's demented. Yeah, that's right. It's a ter- terrifying <laughs> thought. Horrible. Sorry to leave you with that, listeners. We'll have to think of something a bit brighter next time. <laughs> well, we've had a wonderfully interesting discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. Consultants and fellows, don't forget to claim CPD for listening. Instructions for how to do this are in our episode notes. If you have any episode suggestions or you'd just like to say hi, you can email us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.